0: My guest today is Dr. Serini Pillay. Serini is without a doubt one of the most dynamic, multi talented human beings I've had the good fortune to bring on the show, and maybe arguably just out there in the world. When I think about the career and life that I'm trying to build for myself, Serini Pillay is sort of one of these icons or models that draws me forward. He is an author a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a brain researcher, a musician, a talented and accomplished composer and piano player, and and uh, a poet, which we actually get into in this conversation today, really this idea of poetry in everyday life. He's also something of a provocateur, sort of mischief maker, a gleeful trickster who sort of breaks all of the stereotypes you might expect around psychotherapy or leadership development or research. He is constantly and relentlessly curious without losing an ounce of compassion for the suffering and tragedy of the world and how to alleviate that suffering. So he brings in a beautiful mix of awe and wonder and beauty and mystery, and a reverence for all of those things, but also a deep understanding of the challenges of being human being in this world we've built for ourselves. Our conversation today is a wide-ranging one, exploring a variety of topics, ranging from self-awareness and self-development to, to what Sereni calls playing up, playing up a level in your life. And of course, as the title suggests, what it means to engage with the beauty of everyday life, the poetry of everyday life, in a way that unlocks our greatest creative energy and possibility. So this is a super fun one. I really hope you dig it. We did have some technical uh, audio difficulties. Hopefully we'll smooth all of those out in the editing, but if you notice any hiccups, that's all. I haven't haven't cut any of the amazing content that Dr. Pillay shares with us today. So let's settle in (sighs) and hear what Sarini has for us. Hi Sarini, welcome to the Wonder Dome.
1: Hi Andy, it's really lovely to be with you and I'm particularly looking forward to having a conversation about this strange and beautiful time.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, me too. No, there's a way in which I've been, I've had a number of these conversations, and uh, there's a way in which, at least for me, speaking for myself, simply the having of them has helped me tap into more capacity for creativity and resilience than I sense that I would have on my own. Like, there's a way in which engaging with the uncertainty seems to produce some wonderful, out, un, unexpected outputs that just kind of being overwhelmed by it doesn't seem so useful. And I wonder, I'd love to hear just how are you experiencing this present moment? Like, how are you engaging with this uncertainty right now?
1: I, I think to a large extent, I've been uh, acutely aware of a theory that I have, which is that we are all born into this life with a certain kind of existential anxiety, mm. uh, in part because, uh, I think I heard Jason Silva say this uh, that we did nothing wrong and we come in with a death sentence. Hmm. And so (laughs) at at some point, um, facing that existential anxiety, I think is um, really a a powerful thing for most of us because it's not always at the surface. It's sort of deep down and it's niggly. And I think as you get older, it starts gnawing at your stomach and you don't really know what you're doing. And I think, you know, in the same interview that I'm referring to, where Jason Silva talks about this, one of the things he says is, you know, you got to deal with this existential dread one way or another. And so you either believe in God, or you deify your partners and loved ones, or you build something, and you go build something, and you make something, and then that gets you through because you're not distracted. And what I've often found running an anxiety disorder service is that People have this level of existential anxiety, but because it's so ineffable and it's so difficult to describe or put your finger on in some way, people often look for concrete reasons mm-hmm. to justify the subliminal feeling of anxiety. And mm-hmm. so we've got plenty of reasons right now, you know, <laughs> ranging from COVID-19 to the election, to the racial tensions, to the... Of global tensions that exist so i think i think right now there's actually in some way a state of comfort that people have because they feel like they can justify their existential anxiety oh yeah um and i think when life is sort of really smooth then people get even more freaked out because they're like why am i freaking out and there's no reason to freak out <clears throat> uh, now i feel like a lot of people um feel like those are the reasons but what I feel acutely aware of in my work with people is having them reconnect with this existential anxiety to the extent that we do have some choice over how we live our lives and what we dedicate our attention to. Mm. And I think it's super important that we not just get caught up in these circumstantial anxieties that prevent us from seeing the opportunities that exist in um, moving through existential anxiety meaningfully.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That distinction feels really important. I was saying before the call, I, I'm a new father. Well, now a father of two. So I have a two and a half year old and and an eight week old. And uh, I keep having these moments, like, wow, what a strange time, what a scary time to bring a new human into the world. But it's such a it's such a sort of tunnel vision way of thinking about it. When I zoom out far enough you can really look at any period in human history. And in fact, any period in our planet's history and realize what is, you could say, what a strange time (laughs) this is. Like there's a way in which the particulars are always some combination of scary and uncertain and absurd and beautiful all at once. And There's a what I'm hearing you say is that like this current moment, which which is a really critically important moment to be sure, can also perhaps actually take us away from the deeper engagement with our own mortality that might give us more capacity for equanimity and creativity and a sense of purpose in the midst of the truth that we all come in with this death sentence. So I wonder, like, how are you? um, How are you sitting with that? or engaging with that question, whether, you know, whether it's today or, or 10 years ago or 10 years from now, like how are you specifically engaging with that, that existential truth?
1: Well, at a, I think at a, uh, at a more superficial level, one of the things we know about um, COVID-19 is that it does, especially when the numbers were increasing, it does increase what we call mortality salience,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: is a, uh, essentially an acute awareness of the possibility of death. And the problem with that from a decisional standpoint is that it makes us hold onto our own points of view more strongly and even increases our biases. Mm. So we stop thinking about things from other people's points of view, which I think at a time when there's also a lot of global and social conflict, that's difficult because now not only are you do you have a point of view, not only are you aware of death, but you're actually acutely aware, I'm aware that we're holding into our own points of view even more strongly Mm. and not automatically open to other people's points of view, which Mm. makes it difficult to navigate any kind of paradox or conflict in a meaningful way. For example, I will say to them, just some practical things to remember. Like if you're starting a meeting, rather than saying, when you have a team where people know one another, rather than saying, how are you feeling right now? If we knew each other on a team, I would say, Andy, so what do you think Srini's feeling like? And if you ask me, Mm -hmm. what do you think Andy's feeling like? Thereby activating the mentalizing networks in our brains and allowing us to to actively consider the other person's point of view. And so I think when it comes to racial tensions, taking into account another person's point of view deliberately when it comes to political tensions, trying to say, I wonder what it looks like on the other side might actually be useful information for us to gather rather than going on this complete rant about our own points of view, given that our brains are in an even greater state of bias right now. Mm. So mm. I, think at a, I think at a fundamental point of view, there's that. I, I think to your point of view about, you know, to do or not to do, to have children or not to have children, I think another thing I'm very acutely aware of is what we call post-decisional bias, where our brains are biased to rally quickly to justify whatever decision <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if we've decided to have kids, it will justify that. If we decided not to have kids, it'll justify that. If you decide to get married, it'll justify that. If you decide not to, it's going to justify that. So I tend, and also if you look at brain activations, um, you know, a lot of times the brain starts activating in the direction of your intention before you even know you have an intention,
2: mm. Mm. which
1: means that your brain is deciding and your intention may not actually be a conscious decision to do something, There may be a bunch of other factors that have come together that have started this process of doing whatever it is you're doing, switching a job or having a baby or deciding to stay in a relationship or deciding to leave a relationship. And whatever you think you're intending, stuff has already begun to happen. So for me, what this is, is I think a signal to the fact that it it really – I think it helps to tune into ourselves at this Mm -hmm. moment. And it helps – to try to understand all the different factors that are influencing us. And I don't think there's any kind of perfect state of like, oh, you know, I know all 10 factors because the unconscious is such a dominant part of human decision-making that I think to claim that we know is sort of pointless. But what I what I do think is important is to be able to deepen our connection with ourselves hmm. because I think the self-circuit in the brain is intrinsically connected to other people's points of view. So I, I don't think of us as being that separate, right? I mean, if you think about it right now, you and I may think that we are separate because we believe our perceptions. But in reality, we're, we've somehow leveraged a technology to showcase the fact, if, you, if we were not connected, this technology would not work. Mm.
2: But
1: if your listeners were not connected to you already, it would, this technology would not work. They've got to dial into you and you've got to dial into me and I've got to dial into you. But the truth is, whether we like it or not, everything outside of us lives inside of us. So when I see you, the, the really slightly strange thing is that not only, like, where are you? Are you on my desk? Am I- <laughs> are you in the physical space you're in? Are you between where you are and where I am? Like, it seems like That location is difficult to discern, but one thing is one thing's for sure, is that you are living in my brain, like you are actually part of my body. You're part of my brain tissue as as a as a visual form, and my brain is communicating with the rest of my body. So you are part of every activation that is spreading through the rest of my body, and the same I think for you, and the same for everyone who's listening to this. So we are connected to one another's bodies. And that, for me, is a very compelling reason to try to understand the whole, Mm. to try to understand that that if we're just arguing or creating conflicts, we are going to be in that form in someone else's brain and they're going to be in that form in our brains. Mm. If we can take a step back and say, hey, if we are actually more like beads on a chain of global consciousness, might we consider one another and our differences from a different perspective rather than just articulating something because we're clear about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, it, you know, I really like the Rumi poem that that refers to a field outside of right or wrong uh, because yes. that's sort of where I live. And, and I think it's because I don't know how to really live in the right or wrong uh, fields of life. Mm-hmm. So, I think to summarize that, what I'm saying so far is that I think we are living at a moment in time when our brains are heavily biased. We are living at a point in time where there's a temptation to polarize, but that in that temptation to polarize, it's also an invitation to notice that we live in one another's brains. And so might we not also benefit from spending, setting aside some time to think, how do I connect with people who are not like mm. uh, politically, mm. racially, from an opinion state, it doesn't really matter. Like, What is, what is the, the richness we can bring to the world together in a kind of orchestral way? And what adjustments do we need to make to transition from being a cacophony to being a symphony?
0: Hmm. Hmm. Lovely. There's so much in there. I, you've already sort of touched on at least four or five themes I was hoping to unpack with you. So I want to sit for a minute and take that in. And see where to go next. One one thing I'm really tuning into, in addition to just like what a what a much more expansive and joyful way that might be to live that you're describing, um, I'm sort of tuning into the 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 way in which we have we seem to have built for ourselves a collective society, for lack of a better word, or collective culture, where it it feels really risky to take the stance of knowing the stranger there's a sense that if i if i Sereni, really want to be in your world that means i've got to give up my world which of course baked into that that belief is is that separation there's my world and your world and what i hear you saying is in fact no what really seems to be true based on everything we know both scientifically based on all of these lineages and traditions that had at least some access to this truth is that we are actually connected, that we are literally inside of each other. you're holding me and your and your whole body, and I'm holding you in mine through our perceptions so so I wonder to to the extent that you've played in this space of inviting people into to be with the other in a way that uh, that helps them begin to see that they don't have to that their world doesn't dissolve or blow up or evaporate if they take that half step towards the other. How, like, how are you extending that invitation or how are you helping people work with that at whatever level you're working with that?
1: I think part of the way I work with that is intentional and part of it is unintentional. So mm-hmm. uh, I think when it's intentional, it's usually in the context of my professional work as a psychiatrist or as a, as a coach. So I think in that space, I have a very strong belief and I stress belief because I don't want that to be confused with a fact, but I have a very strong belief that love is a much more powerful force Mm. uh, than we might initially uh, think it to be. And so I think my experience has been that when my clients in whatever form are able to leave this dualistic world um, Mm -hmm. and enter this kind of non-dualistic consciousness and awareness, this this thing we call self-love, I think has less to do with looking at yourself in the mirror and being like, oh my God, I love you, versus uh, just giving up the dualism. And the paradox is that when you give up the dualism, the self-love and other love comes to be. And mm-hmm. so in mm-hmm. the microcosm of the clinical encounter or the coaching encounter, I, I invite people, uh, while being sensitive to you know, what their own fears might be, to progressively explore that space, so they can understand that consciousness. And I think there are a bunch of people who do that with the aid of drugs. There are, you know, some people use marijuana for that. Some people use psychedelics for that, so that they can begin to train their brains to understand that what we see is not what we get in the world. That actually, the world is probably something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I personally don't think. I mean, as a form of entertainment, I think that that's fine. But in terms of Um, sort of trying to figure out what other powers you have. I think the powers of our agency are incredible Mm. because mixed into the power of agency is the power of allowing consciousness energy to move through you. So first you think, I do and I am, and then you think, I am not. And when you are not, you are able to fully experience the joys of that surrender, and I feel like I experienced that in a very concrete way. I was my tennis coach currently. I go between Boston and New York, and I was in New York with my tennis coach, who has this very naive way of coaching. I've worked with other coaches before, and you know he's in his he just finished college, and he just decided the other day that he was just gonna. He said, "Oh, so what do you want to do? You want to hit?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And most coaches are very sensitive to my level of play, which is sort of just below intermediate. So they'll hit, but not too hard. He just whacked the ball. (laughs) I was like, what is happening here? I'm not going to be able to get to a single ball. And then I changed my mindset and I thought, why didn't I just give in to this thing he's inviting me to? Because he's inviting me not only to meet the ball where he's hitting the ball, but to a part of myself that may be able to rise to the occasion. And so I did. I I ran after the ball and, and in our break. We were both panting and drinking water. And he goes, that was pretty good. You play up." And I said, what what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, I gave you a choice. Like I was hitting the ball hard. You could have been like, hey, stop it. Like go back to where I am at. But instead you chose to take it on as a challenge. And yeah, you didn't get every ball in, but you must have surprised yourself. So in the clinical encounter, I think uh, I call this self-esteem maintenance versus self-esteem optimization. Mm. And. Uh, a lot of people just live their lives maintaining their self-esteem rather than living into possibility and committing to that possibility and therefore optimizing who they are. And I think that this is the time when rather than just focusing on bouncing back from the adversities we're facing, we stand to gain a lot by committing to a possibility that does not yet exist in reality, which we can really commit to because we believe we are enough to deliver on what that is. I call that existential confidence. It's something that I'm working on with a, a thought partner of mine, Jim Selman. Mm-hmm. And I think we both feel very devoted to the idea that, that this commitment to a greater possibility is an incredible invitation at a time like this and may not be obvious. So I, I mention it, you know, I can imagine that some people relate to that and some people are rolling their eyes being like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> can I just make it through the day? And and it's like, actually, you can just make it through the day. But by setting aside even an hour a week to define this possibility and say, what is this greater possibility in life I'd like to commit to? Uh, committing to that possibility means you, you don't have to consciously navigate your way there through full control. You can, because you, you have some kind of marker, that marker is your guide. It is, mm-hmm. it, it's, your, it's telling you if you're on track or not on track. And how you get there is less dependent on conscious steps to take to get there. So I think that that the idea of of committing to a possibility, whether it's a, a business that's failing or a person who's wondering where am I going to go to next, um, just beginning to experiment with it and say, you know, what what is this possibility? And and I think the the thing that people uh, really often the challenge that we meet is life, I think, comes at you with so much ferocity that you're often feeling like you don't have the motivation. Or mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 a group of French psychoanalysts uh, who've studied the connection between the mind and bodily disease. And one of the things they point out is this condition of essential depression, which is different from the way psychiatry manages the idea of depression. Because the key feature is not depressed mood or suicidality or difficulty concentrating, but it's lack of vitality. Mm-hmm. And I think we're living in an era where there's a tremendous lack of vitality and intrinsic motivation, and so a lot of holding on to external forces to garner some kind of feeling, like mm. anger or irritation. And I think at some point that we don't have that, we're going to be left with this whole feeling mm. of like, what am I? And I. One of the things that's interesting about the French psychoanalysts is they connect, the, the primary feature that they connect to essential depression is being overly operational. So people who just use external means to control reality rather than creating times for reflection and creating times for connecting with the abstraction of who we are.
2: Mm.
1: And, you know, it's very complicated. Like on the surface, where 50% human cells, bacterial cells, a bunch of water. And and it's sort of, it's not that inspiring. But I think if you look beyond that, and you try to ask yourself, well, you know, who am I? I I think we can look beyond the tabloids and beyond the modern publishing um, forces that make everything sound super concrete, the five ways to do this, and the three ways to do that. And if you don't do this, then that's going to happen. If we look beyond that, and we're like, you know what, I am kind of abstract. And and, and I'm, I'm concrete and I'm abstract. And mm. so abstractions, I think, are some of the forces that we are living without. And mm. what I try to do in my professional work is invite people to their own abstractions, hmm. to, to connect with narratives that are incomplete, feelings, sensations, tastes, that make up their identity but are not necessarily part of a coherent narrative that they can point to. Um, and I think when we, when, when we create conversations where we can begin to understand that we are more than just concrete, that these abstractions matter, then we give ourselves a real power to be able to navigate toward that possibility. Without these subtleties, um, we're always going to need the crutches of logic to get us somewhere. And I think once we realize that we can throw away those crutches, that logic is great afterwards when you're trying to you know, deliver on a message. But when you want to go to the source and you want to go to something that feels much more powerful about what you do in this uncertainty, uh, opening up the conversation with your abstractions, I think is a really powerful way to
0: start to navigate this uncertain terrain. Yeah. I'm so moved by the possibility of what your coach described as playing up. And what you described as self-esteem optimization, this way in which we can engage with a possibility or a story that hasn't been written yet, and then, and then paradoxically let go of the need to write the whole story before we live it, to, to simply allow that possibility to draw us into the story and live it. And then, and then you like looking backwards, use our logic to go, oh, this happened, and then that happened, and this happened. It seems to me that we've sort of inadvertently or maybe intentionally inverted that flow. So we, we try and make sense of our lives forward. We try and make sense of our lives by saying, if I move this piece here and then that piece there and then that piece here, then I'll get to that possibility. But what I hear you saying is no, just the opposite. What if you played tennis as if you were as good as your, as your tennis coach? What if I just played tennis like that? What's gonna happen? Oh, I'm going to swing like this. Oh, I'm going to swing like that. Like suddenly the move, the next move becomes available because you are making a choice to try it rather than staying on, on the sort of side of the court and watching two other people play tennis and seeing what happens, which is awesome. I got this image of someone, you talked about commitment and um, there, I'll speak from my own experience. I've noticed in the past there are ways in which I haven't, but when i haven't fully committed to something part of the thing that's keeping me from fully committing is is that either conscious or unconscious knowledge that i can step back it's like making the decision to swim across let's say the english channel right from from the island to the to the mainland in europe and you know at some point you cross the halfway point and it's actually you've got you just have to keep going you, there's no turning back right and i wonder I wonder if, what so part in what I hear in your invitation is like, what if we create more awareness or more engagement with the, actually at the existential level, there's no turning back. So we have a choice. We can either swim towards that far shore and either sink or not, or just, I think it's Helen Keller who said, you know, the, the, the fearful are caught out as much, in the end, the fearful are caught out as much as the bold. We all end up in the same place. So I'd rather go down swimming than go down just watching someone else awesome. make the attempts. And, I, and I'm really sort of moved to hear that you're seeing that in your clients when people reorient in that way, a lot of possibility opens up that they simply are blind to from where they're currently standing.
1: Well, when we, when we're, when we stay with the logical mind, uh, and I'm going to, this is obviously an oversimplification, but when we stay with the logical mind, we are in the prefrontal cortex, And when we move to these incomplete narratives, these puzzle pieces that are trying to get put together, we're we're toggling to the default mode network. And the prefrontal cortex is sort of the focus mind, and the default mode network is the network that's putting puzzle pieces together. Hmm. So what ends up happening, and actually, if you look at circuits in the brain that are responsible for self-awareness, the default mode network plays a huge role in that. Mm. And by putting these puzzle pieces together, we start to have th- these motivations. You know, if you look at great thinkers and discoveries, so Einstein, for example, discovered, uh, described his theory of relativity as a musical perception. And so what he's saying is that he had this realization, which generally you could say comes from the default mode network and then gets figured out by the prefrontal cortex. And you can, when you are in this abstraction, that we're talking about, you're playing in the default mode network. Mm. So last book, Tinker, will Doodle, Try, is about ways to get into the default mode network. And there are really simple ways to do that. You can, by building unfocused times into your day, you know, like 5 to 20 minutes, when your brain would naturally be in a slump, you know, like napping, for example, 5 to 15 minutes of napping gives you 1 to 3 hours of clarity. Moodling mm. improves memory by 29%, just scribbling on a piece of paper, Um, You know, there's a thing called positive constructive daydreaming, which improves your creativity because you set aside 20 minutes in your day and you say, I'm just going for a walk. And you just walk on a curvy path because that actually improves creativity more than walking around the block. And as you're out, you do something, uh, you have to do something low key. So you can't really be sitting at your desk and staring out to get into positive constructive daydreaming. Positive constructive daydreaming requires you to be knitting or gardening or walking in some kind of low-key way. And then you just let your mind float. You start thinking of something desirable, your dogs running with your dogs through the woods, or lying on a yacht, or on the beach. And and this default mode network starts to kick in. And what you start to do then is put these puzzle pieces together. And you know, I think a great example that I actually mentioned in my book is uh, Carrie Banks Mullis, uh, who discovered a synthetic way of making DNA. Hmm. Um, he, his process, you know, like his lab people really didn't like him much because his, uh, he, he just didn't follow any things that scientists would hold near and dear to their hearts. He, he was driving from Berkeley to Mendocino. His girlfriend was in the car. She was asleep. They had had some red wine. He stopped along the way. Suddenly started scribbling on a rock face. Then eventually made it to their small house. Suddenly something came to him and he was like, wait a minute, this is the way to do it. I think we relate to this from like the thoughts we have in the shower. But setting aside these 20 minutes a couple times a day to rejuvenate the brain is a, you know, it's a very simple way of acknowledging that circuit, whether you're doing this on your own at home, whether you're part of a business. You know, there are companies, Zappos, that actually have napping pods um, so that people can rejuvenate their brains and think more creatively. Mm. But once we get into this default mode network, we start to allow for certain things. So things like fantasy, for example, uh, which are peculiarly related to very con- like concrete things. So, for example, um, so I mentioned two two lines of thinking in the in the French psychoanalytic line of thinking. When you are overly operational and only turn to external things—drugs, cosmetic surgery, cognitive things that you think you can do—this way of being is actually associated with having more medical illnesses because you have an emotional suppression. And the emotional has to go somewhere. Mm. And and the brain's emotional centers connect with the rest of your body. And so the idea is that when you become overly operational, you're putting yourself at physical risk. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to train your default mode network to be activated regularly. I think that that's one sort of idea. The other idea is I'm also chief medical officer of a virtual reality company called Rulay. And I was... uh, I'm a co-founder in the company, and I was hanging out with the CEO the other day, and we had some very practical things to talk about related to a marketing strategy. And we went out to dinner, and I looked around me and I said, "Oh my God, look at that!" And and he goes, "What do you mean?" I said, "Making out." And he thought I was referring to two people making out. He looked around, he said, "The trees are making out." Like in the 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 sun had set, and these trees were touching each other in the middle <laughs> of the night with all this chaos going on in the world, and breaking news and what's happening. These trees, it seemed like like I felt like I caught them in some kind of poetic moment. And he saw it too. And he said, that's so amazing. They're even teasing each other. They're like flirting with each other. And and of course, both of us recognized we were adding a narrative to what this visual was. But when you commit to living in a poetic space, mm-hmm. which is not like my intellectual thought at the time. Like at the time, I just was sort of like, struck by how beautiful the world was and i was like the squirrels couldn't care less they're just like sorry i got some nuts to pick i'm (laughs) gonna go pick some nuts up i'm running there i'm running back they just didn't care and i was sort of thinking it's so weird how we create these narratives in the world without noticing this poetry and you know we're about to enter the fall now where like leaves are going to begin to change and there's an incredible amount of beauty and i and i often will say to people, people will say oh yeah but don't you understand the consequence of this politically and this racially. Of course, I understand that. But the brain is a resource-constrained environment. It's dynamically Mm -hmm. configured. But symbolically speaking, you've got 10 units of attention. And the way you perceive the world has to do with how you decide you want to use that attention. There's enough tragedy in the world to occupy all 10 units with tragedy. There's enough conflict in the world to occupy all 10 units with conflict. But I think that in order for us to be motivated to use these abstractions, we really, I think, owe to ourselves to, to, to recognize the trees that are making out. And, and what ended up happening was because we entered our dinner with that level of, level of inspiration, it changed our idea of the mission and vision for the company. We were like, let's remember, like, no matter what the funders say, we're not a technology company we are about elevating human experience. Like Mm. we believe in the human possibility and we're just using technology to deliver an experience that will encourage self-authoring and just sort of getting into that space made us change our whole strategic plan about how to see capital. So it's, it's sort of like, if you, if you allow the poetry to enter, it starts to influence the logic and then the logic starts to play with the poetry and you have a completely different business outcome. So, I don't find poetry that impractical. I think in many ways, poetry is a way to transport yourself much faster into a zone where motivation comes alive. Mm. And I, you know, I, I'm sort of a, in addition to this kind of being, this kind of person, I'm, I also have a meat and potato side to me. So I, when I talk to people who are like, you're a heavy dude, man. You know, <laughs> how, do you, how do you want your steak done? And someone's barbecuing. I said to someone the other day, the way you talk about barbecuing is actually like poetry. Mm. It's just like somebody saying, man, that was a hell of a good cut of meat. And just what that experience is in that moment, when you can hear, I said, you know, there's nothing you can say plainly. Like somehow everybody talks about this. But when you talk about barbecues, I'm hearing an entire orchestra like loudly in my head. And I'm like, oh my God, this is such a beautiful moment. So I, I don't feel like this ecstasy needs to be explored intellectually or poetically. I think if we tune into what we care about, you know, everything from a barbecue to Beethoven, I think, I think we, can, we can experience this feeling of coming alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm noticing a, maybe an analogy between this uh, invitation you're extending for people to welcome their poetic selves or their poetic parts into everyday experience in the same way you're inviting us into like welcome the other into our experience. As you said in the way we are the other is already here. Right. So there's sort of this way in which I think the that part of us that wants to figure out the marketing plan is saying, no, no, if you go poetic, we're not going to figure out the marketing plan. And 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 so we just have to stay operational. But what you're inviting us into is the possibility that, that that you'll come up with an entirely deeper and more impactful operation as a result of allowing space in your life for the poetry to emerge. That that being poetic is not only not antithetical to being resilient and being capable and being able to navigate this complex world of ours, it's actually essential to do it at a level that that allows us to evolve and move forward, as opposed to keeps us repeating the same patterns that, we, that that keep giving us outcomes that we don't really want. Is that right? Is that sort of, yeah, does that? Absolutely. And I, and I think the idea of
1: poetry can be off-putting to some, but I, I just want to emphasize how, how much I think it exists uh, in so many different realms. The, the example that comes to mind is a, a janitor, a friend of mine went to the University of Chicago Medical School and he became friends with the janitor and uh, then left and we went to visit the janitor and, we, and then we became friends. And I remember going over to his house one day and he said, he said, oh man, I'm so happy you came. And I said, why? He said, because you are going to really appreciate the paint I put on this pipe. And, and so he takes me into the basement and I I look at, and I see this fire engine red in the middle of everything. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Like literally I had goosebumps. And And I said, you know, I don't know what to say. You're an artist. Like it's unbelievable. He goes, you can eat off that pipe, right? <laughs> look how clean it is and look how beautiful it is. And and so I feel like these moments exist really for everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's a there's a that, that poetry belongs only to the poet. I think the poet has taken advantage of the fact that life is poetic. Mm-hmm. That, that for every human being, having an eye out for poetry, uh, you know, whether that's a, a red pipe or a beautiful cut of meat or a piece of broccoli. It's sort of, I think having an eye out for what that poetry is, is I think giving yourself an opportunity to be elevated and not to be brought down by what our social narrative is. Because I think the beginning of this conversation, I I think you were alluding to the fact that we have such a a pungent social narrative
2: Mm.
1: that it's so easy to be sort of absorbed in what that pungency is and to immediately... Into some kind of polarized state, but I think this polarization is going to go on for a long time about a lot of different issues. Mm. I don't even really know these are local phenomena. Like somebody said to me, "Well, well, what do you think about our local political scenarios?" And I, I said, you know, I, "Honestly, I'm just befuddled by it. Like I'm befuddled by it the way I would be befuddled by somebody's kidneys that packed up. Because if somebody's kidneys packed up, I wouldn't start going and treat, treating the kidney.
2: Mm. I would never
1: understand what's happening globally in the body that the kidneys packed up and then i might understand wait a minute they have diabetes and diabetes can affect the kidney so i would i realize that that can then affect all the different organs and so the metaphor for me is that what's happening in america and what's happening in the uk and what's happening in hong kong these may all seem like they're separate patterns but my feeling is that weather doesn't stop at the ocean's edge you know in the same way consciousness spills over Mm. and i feel like like to not pay attention to global phenomena and simply to go local would be like going to look at a kidney without doing a blood glucose. Mm-hmm. We, we actually really need to understand that this connection applies to everyone in the world and that, that if we just act locally, I think there's a naivete about that. And, and of course, it's sort of like, well, what are you going to do? Like I have nothing to do with Hong Kong or I have nothing to do with Boris Johnson, like what, and and I understand that there are certain local solutions that need to occur. But I think as we're thinking about this, I find it very humbling that whatever local solutions I come up with are usually very inadequate because they don't address global consciousness.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a wonderful yes and quality that I hear you describing. Like, yes, you can love your barbecue and be poetic. Yes, you can, find a way for your community to come together and recognize that you're a part of ecology of communities and a system of a global network. The, the one, that that in and of itself doesn't have to polarize. Like there's a way in which it seems to me, some of us assert it's either local or global. And and I just keep hearing you say it's both. It's both. It's just about what level of abstraction are you going to zoom in at? And as you zoom in, can you remind yourself that you can also zoom out again, that we have this unique capacity as a species, unlike the squirrels who are just like climbing the trees and getting their nuts, like we can, we could go climb that tree and, and get a nut too, actually, if we chose to, although people might look at us funny, right? right. But or we could sit back and admire the, the poetic beauty of the way the trees make out with each other. Or we could get really curious about what's happening in the root systems of the trees and start like maybe like digging in the soil, and discovering the interconnected sort of fungal systems that live in the, in the right? Like there's just so many ways we can know that tree and all of them are useful and none of them are complete. So I really appreciate your, the sort of permission for us to be befuddled and then just get really curious about like, okay. Interesting. This is not working over here. I wonder why that is. Let's check this out over here. Maybe they're connected. Um no, I'm not seeing a connection, but maybe that's just because I'm not equipped to see it. But maybe I can see one over here. Is that is that resonating with you? That kind of
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think this idea of um of I've often found like there are days when I'm just rushing from one place to another. I you know I'm uptown, downtown, and that's I'm in that mode. But there are days when I look at a tree and I'm like, oh my God, the, the
0: connection to this tree is ridiculous. <laughs> but, <laughs> the like, pure shreeness of it.
1: Yeah, I look at it and I'm like, I, I can't even believe this is, like I live in this world. Like what is, You know, like the, the what is going on thing has really, I recently you were asking at the beginning of our conversation you know, and I was sort of expressing some kind of trepidation about as a transition I feel myself in. I think one of the transitions is this notion of cause and effect. Hmm. that I just don't believe
2: anymore.
1: Hmm. I find it it wholly inadequate as a scientific approach. um, And its cause and effect starts with assuming that duality is okay. Hmm. Uh, um, And, you know, just take a simple phenomenon of cholesterol, right? I mean, most people in the world have this vision that if you have too much LDL, you have too much bad cholesterol... It's going to go clog up your arteries and you're going to die because there won't be blood going to your heart, or to your brain. But in truth, the data around cholesterol is actually confusing. So the British medical journal um, published a meta-analysis showing 19 studies that showed that for a bunch of studies, there was no effect of cholesterol on mortality. And for the rest of the studies, the higher your LDL, the lower your mortality. And then... The American Journal of Cardiology published a study of more than 100,000 patients showing that if you had a high LDL, you were less likely to die after a heart attack. So that doesn't mean we should rush out and start gorging on cholesterol. (laughs) What it means is that it's probably more complicated than a cause and effect. And it's it's probably we need to look at these systems differently. To me, one of the joys of technology is the ability to individualize and to try to understand how do my genes factor into this? What is, how does my environmental stuff factor? How does my activity level factor into this? And I think that whole thought process takes me into this notion of how would I live if I couldn't ask why? And how, how would I live uh, if I didn't know, if, if I just didn't have questions like that? And it, it reminds me of a poem by E. Cummings um, and I, I'm not sure I remember all the words, but it was something like when man determined to destroy the world, he took the was of shell. So he took you know the, the predisposing factors of what could be and finding why smashed it into because.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: His idea was that man decided to destroy himself. He decided to live in this dualistic world of this happened because of that. And I think that idea means that if we give up questioning, then all of a sudden we're floating in the world, right? And then we encounter Kierkegaard's idea that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. That, that, that actually, we all say we want to be free, but you know, Irving Yalom, who has studied existential anxiety in detail, says fear of freedom is one of the biggest existential fears we have. And mm-hmm. Kierkegaard would say, yeah, you say you want to be free, but you know, in terms of why you do the things you do, you do them so you can build balls and chains into your life so you can have a good reason for why you can't be free. And mm. so I think no matter what our choices are, to do or not to do, one of the things to ask ourselves is, how can we facilitate our own freedom without with the choices that we're making mm. rather than falling to the default of letting them limit our lives? Mm. You know, and I think that's the difference between uh, a parent who says, I'm just locked to my house. I can go nowhere. To a parent who says, I'm going for a walk in the park that's safe and I'm taking my child out with me. To a parent who says, I'm swimming with my baby in the water. You know, like there's so many levels of freedom you can start to really encounter. And I I don't think it's about whether you've done this or not. It's about what you're doing with it. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's a very tantalizing question. And I see... Lots of ways in which I limit myself in this way, and my clients limit themselves when when we choose ways that limit our freedom and then we complain about them.
2: Yeah.
1: we're like like what can I do? You know they did that like they're not allowing me to do that yeah. you know, it's a it's a it's a very it's I think it's a precarious way of being to always ascribe cause to anything. and I the challenge I'm trying to pose for myself, which, I think I do with my clients as well, is what it caused didn't matter. Then what would you turn to?
0: Mm, mm. Um, there's a wonderful story uh, that was turned into a film called Arrival. But the story is by an author named Ted Chang, and it's called The Story of Your Life. And uh, I won't give away, it's, it's different than the movie, and it's well worth a read. But he explores this very question, the distinction between a causal explanation of the universe versus uh, what the, he uses the word teleological, which is just kind of what the universe is, how it's made. And there's a particular principle, which I'm not going to remember the name of, but it's the light refraction principle. Which basically, the causal explanation is that is that when light hits water, depending on the angle and the density of the water and and all the other variables, it, it changes path. So when water is in the way of light water changes the path of light. And so there's a causal relationship. This happened and that happened. But there's also the principle actually says that they've, they've gone down this rabbit hole. And the principle actually says that the water always takes the most efficient path to its destination. It always takes either, or actually, no, it's a pair. It's a variational. So it either takes the minimal path to its destination or the maximal. And so what does that mean? It means that somehow the light already quote unquote knows where it's going. And, and as soon as it, it, it encounters the water, it's already ending up where it needs to be as opposed to like, well, what if we add more water or what if we change the angle or what if we do this? Well, then the light would still take either the minimal or maximal path to its destination, which is, is super counterintuitive. It seems to be the case that if that's true and physicists have proven it to be true, that, that somehow the light already has all the information it needs r- the, from the moment it beams out of the sun to where it's exactly going to end up. Otherwise, we'd have some causal way to change the direction of the light, but we can't. So I'm just really struck by this way in which, like I hear you describing that as we engage more deeply with the nature of the universe, again, we're, we've got to both end from a causal point of view. If you do this, then that will happen. But from the sort of kind of quantum view or from this sort of deeper reality view, that doesn't always seem to be the case. It seems like it's already going to happen that way. And and I hear you asking this question, so what do we do about that? Because I think a lot of people hear that that alternative truth, which I notice I'm, I'm only explaining partially well. Like I, I want to sort of I'll point people towards the story so they can read it and really get a feel for it. But uh, it's like, we're afraid that we're going to lose agency by tuning into that fact. But what I hear you saying is no, actually by being aware of, of the non-causal nature of reality, we actually get more agency that we can actually tune in and be more aware of the interplay of forces that we're a part of, as opposed to the, the agent who's got to kind of shape those forces actively and operationally. So again, there's this invitation to kind of like being with reality as a path towards agency, as opposed to, being against reality or being a sort of outside reality and shaping it. And like, I wonder, as you start to, as you start to see that distinction really show up in your life and really show up in your client's life. And, and as you see it show up in our, in our neurobiology, what's, how are you helping yourself or your clients really deepen into that permission to not see everything as as a cause and effect relationship, but rather to sort of be awake to this mystery of like, what is, what's really happening here and how am I relating to what's really happening here?
1: Yeah, I I think I, there are a lot of different ways in which I think I, I like to introduce that idea. One of them is uh, through the notion of absurdity. I, mm-hmm. I find surrealism really compelling uh, just because like, what is the apple doing in the middle of that person's for it? Or like, why are these clocks melting? What You know, like that's where you start getting into this kind of, let me look in this a causal way at mm. something that is just reminding me of the absurdity of the world. And a friend of mine, who I was missing a like, lot, we were texting, and, he, and his way of, of saying emotionally warm things is to share something that's on his mind, even if it's random. And so he said, hey, I was just thinking, how does the seed know that the soil is the soil so it can do its thing? Hmm. <laughs> I was like, what? And so I actually decided to write a song about that because I wanted to find the answer. And I ended up writing a song that I feel very happy about because it it has a very sort of magical uh, chorus. But leading up to that, the scene that I said was this garden gnome that came to life saying, hey, I'm going to tell you the story of this guy who came out with a cup of seeds one day. And he was spraying them around in this field and in the sand patch. And and I came alive, and I, the guy looked at me because he thought he realized I was alive. But then he, but then I I was still, and so he kept on throwing the seeds. And I'm going to tell you the story of what happened to the seed. And and if I remember the words correctly, it's something like uh, when the seed met the sand, and the sand took his hand. Hmm. He said the seed to the sand, "I'm your man." <laughs> and, and the the whole i so of course, there's a story right and there 's some kind of personification of a process, but in the fantasy and in the absurdity of that fantasy i actually called it it 's a term that i'm I'm very excited about i, I called it biomagical. uh and that's of mm-hmm. course we call it biomagical um, you know they say it isn't logical uh, but but the whole idea is that there is a world of meaning outside of perception I think one of my I love what I feel biology has shown me and I, I love my brain imaging life and the fact that I was able to look into people's brains and understand how blood flows in the brains or to be able to be in front of a human body for so many years, medical school. And so sort of after that, to, this is all sort of amazing stuff. And I also feel uh, that if, had I not recognized the limitations of biology, I think I've, I, would, I would have felt cheated by life because i <laughs> I feel like um, biology is—I mean, compared to a lot of the sciences, even the physical sciences, where, like in physics, you don't have to see everything to test it out. You know, you can have gravity, and, and because an object will fall, you can assume there's a force somewhere there, even though you can't see it. But in biology, if you don't see it, and you talk about it, it's a little kooky, and and so you know, because you have to see it in imaging, or you've got to do a biopsy, and. I think once I realized that that's not actually where, if I really want to help, my most recent movement in medicine is I've realized that I'm very dedicated to the biomagical. And Mm I I want to actually create a whole system of thought and experiments and treatments based on biomagical interventions. And and biomagical is, for me, where I am right now. And, And what biomagical is, is an integration of what is perceptual and what is not perceptual and and to understand that there is a force and a poetry that happens when these two ideas when you realize it's not that they meet that they were always part of the same system yeah. of being alive and yeah. i believe that we'll come across very different kinds of treatments even for things like cancer or heart disease or or stroke or alzheimer's disease by thinking in biomagical
0: ways mm. Hmm. There's a, uh, I'm really loving that distinction and I'm noticing there's a way in which we can just include ourselves in that biomagic, right? Like if we were to write another chorus or verse to your song, it's something like when the man on the land took the seed in his hand and put it in a hole in the sand, he said, it's going to be a tree. That's my plan, right? Like there's this way in which we, okay, okay. So now the man's causing the tree to grow, but actually, no, he's just part of this how did the how did the man know that the seed grows into a tree like how do we know exactly. that right we yeah. just sort of we we now the, our logical mind can after the fact explain it but there's just some sort of sense of like oh yeah this goes here in the ground and yeah. at some point it'll be 10 times taller than me <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and it, it is. really is magical if you think yes. of it, yes. there's so much we don't know yes it's, uh, like i think you know the the idea like magicians in general intrigue me because i feel like they're a metaphor for what's already happening in life anyway
2: Mm. what
1: Mm. i watch tv like what where is this thing coming from like it's like it's something's what you know like i i'm talking to you like how is this happening like how (laughs) I'm, i'm talking to an image of you and you're talking to an image of me and in the process of talking to each other's images we're getting some kind of extrapolation about each other's realities. <laughs> and then we don't know who's listening to us, but whoever's listening to us is connected to us. Mm. And we're connected to them
2: mm.
1: outside of time and space. I mean, it's a pretty funky world. I mean, no longer <laughs> I like being my I, I think, I think life gets uh, to a place where I think we... Life is so funky that I think we choose to funkify it deliberately just so we can create the illusion that we have some kind of control yeah. Over yeah. all this yeah. madness because it's such an intriguing world to live in. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people would say things like, well, okay, that's great. But like, what do I do? I'm stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and of course there are frameworks, you know, there are things like when you're overwhelmed, it, part of what's happening is there's too much blood going to the amygdala. And so, You want to figure out how to decrease amygdala activation to allow your thinking brain to get more of the blood. So you can, you know, have a paradigm like circa, which is an abbreviation for chunking. You know, if somebody says to you, I want you to do this by tomorrow and you're freaked out by it, it's like, let's break it down. Ignore mental chatter, which is a a meditational practice of mindfulness, just focusing on the breath. You know, reality check, which is basically using self-talk to say to yourself, this too shall pass, like no matter how horrible it is. Control check, which is letting go of the stuff you can't control because hmm. you are not do anything about it anyway. Or attention shift, which is shifting your attention from the problem to the solution so you can live in the possibility. I feel like those five steps are a framework that you can use to, to feel the, the, the funness of the, the limits of your own agency. But outside of those five facts, there is also a certain kind of surrender. And I think through whatever meditation practice one chooses, the ability to be afloat in a consciousness that wants to hold you and to let it hold you so that you can take that energy into the rest of your life and embrace life in the same way, I think is as magical as following a five-step process mm. to pull blood away from the amygdala. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah. Permission. I'm I'm getting permission to be funky from you, which I really like that there's just this wonderful opportunity for all of us to recognize the value of, of frameworks like Circa and to use them as doorways into this wonderful biomagical mystery that we're all a part of. And. Hmm. I guess what I want, you know, there's, it's so funny. I had like 10 things I wanted to ask you about and we've got like three minutes left and we didn't talk about almost any of them, but I'm feeling really pulled to where I find myself now is this sort of like the, your invitation into funkiness that you're giving everyone here. And I wonder if we could maybe shift gears. This might be putting you on the spot. So if you don't have it at hand, but I know you're, a, I know you're actually a poet, like you've written poetry. So you not only approach life poetically, but you are a poet. As you alluded to, you're you're a songwriter. Like, I wonder if there might be some way in which we could play with the funkiness of this format and say, you know what, let's not let's not ask any more questions. Let's let's invite people into that mystery in an active or experiential way. So I don't know. Maybe you have a poem at hand you could read of yours, or maybe the E. Cummings poem you re- you referenced or song you could sing or play. I wonder if there's anything coming up for you as I as I invite us into doing something a little different here at the end.
1: Well, there's so many. I'm thinking to play. I had my music teacher sing the song uh, that I was telling you about, but I, I think, I think in three minutes, probably, what I really would want to invite people to do is to write down what to them feels most poetic. You know, as I said, anything from a barbecue to Beethoven. Hmm. Uh, just what, what, when in life? have you just felt that that glimmer of hope, that feeling, you know, whether it was a sunny day on the beach, looking out, whether you were, you know, in the
2: afternoon,
1: whether what want to, to really just write that down and then ask yourself. So what I would do is ask people to write that down and then ask yourself, how would I grow this glimmer of magic or hope so that I can build more fulfilling moments into my life? Mm-hmm. Um, because there's, a, there's another uh, construct called repetition compulsion, which Freud found out about when he looked at how babies played. And uh, he basically was like, this is like a very weird thing that children do. They, they're throwing their toys out of their cups, which is like, imagine coming home every day and just throwing a furniture out. It's like, then they cry about it. They're like, hey, wait a minute, you threw it out. Now you're crying. Then the mother and these experiments brought it back and then they were like really happy and then they threw it out again and everyone was like, oh, they're being so cute. But what he said was, you know, this pattern of behavior of repetitively causing self-distress is something that we take into our adulthood mm-hmm. and that, we are wired to master disappointment mm. and not seek fulfillment. Mm. And so what I would invite everybody to do is, if that is in fact the case, why don't we deliberately seek fulfillment? Like write down, just to start out, a, a moment in your life when you felt a glimmer of hope and ask yourself, if I had to seek fulfillment around that or build that, how would that? How would I mm. build that? And I think with the time that we have left, that's probably what I feel would be a really wonderful way to start to build for oneself, to yeah. deliberately seek fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that whoever's hearing this is hearing it as an invitation to know something within themselves uh, yeah. more, more than anything.
0: Mm. Yeah, yesterday my, uh, my wife and I took our kids out for a walk and within 10 minutes it started raining. And there was a moment where we were like, oh, shoot we didn't plan, we didn't bring the umbrella, but then, but then there was just an, a recognition that the car was a 10 minute walk away. Right. So we could either, we could either spend that moment complaining about what didn't work or, or tune in. And it just suddenly, I, I didn't wouldn't have used this language until now, but it suddenly became so poetic, like the mist across this particular landscape. We were walking this, the, the pleasure of having cool water hitting our skin you know just there is the the sound of the way the water falling through the air shifted and what i hear you inviting people to is this like what if we all start planting seeds of poetry with a recognition that just like in nature not every seed takes root but that the seeds that do become can become majestic trees that last a hundred years and in that same way we can trust that poetry and beauty can take root even in the midst of all of this complexity we're living with, and that if we, but if we don't actively engage with that mystery and just notice it and, and plant seeds in our life, we're going to miss it. Our ten units of attention are going to be totally absorbed by the non-poetic, and uh, yeah, that's a great way to close. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Sharini, for that. It was really wonderful. So, if people hearing this, I'll include all of this in the, in the sh- yeah, yeah. I'll include all of your info in the show notes, but. If anyone wants to, hearing this right now, wants to learn more about your work, what's the best place for them to find you?
1: Um, probably my website, which is Dr. um or at nbgcorporate.com. Um, okay. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and in the whole shebang.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, it's such a gift to be here with you. I'm I'm taking your. I'm really going to practice that invitation you just gave to notice poetry more. Going to take your permission to be funky more. Like I just love, you're such a, a a force for joy. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for all the work that you do, and and for sharing that that energy with us here in the Wonder Dome. Thank you for being the channel that you are. Thanks, Srin. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill with support from Kelly Serquois and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, United Nations Refugee Agency and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power and presence. We need you now more than ever.